1: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own
0: opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome podcast listeners. Today we have a radio show. Welcome Jeff. What's happening? Thought after, what's the right ratio? Maybe doing three episodes with guests to one radio show?
1: Uh, I'd say five or six.
0: Should we start doing a weekly radio show? No A need solo that. weekly Jeff radio show on Mondays. Well, I
1: would Friday afternoons. That way we'll be in more the office. popular than you would be. I can't do that to you, man. Listeners. Jeff likes
0: to work from home on Fridays in Venice. So maybe if we do Friday, Jeff podcast, I'll get you in the office.
1: <laughs> set up a studio at home. Definitely not going to happen. What's up, Jeff? What's new? Well, I was in Palm Springs this weekend. Um, That was a nice little change of pace, but everything else is about status quo. What's up with you? You've been in Nicaragua and San Fran? Yeah. um,
0: Nicaragua was actually work, which surprises a lot of people, but was down at a great research conference and uh, catching up with some good friends as well. One of my favorite investment researchers, Steve Sugarood, and and all of the, the crew down there. You know, It's fun. Steve is a macro guy. And, you know, he always says his favorite investments are cheap, hated, but entering an uptrend, which where we kind of originally intersected at years ago and why we kind of see eye to eye on a lot of things. It was fun to listen to him tell stories about building out some of this property in Nicaragua. And, you know, he has still has some land there and, and listen to him tell stories while we're out surfing about being able to, doing the due diligence on the land, said they had to get there by horseback. Mm. You know, and so looking at this, and I think he said he bought it for, apologies Steve, if I get this wrong, but like $10,000, you know, and whatever it's worth now. But it's it's fun, I I love, I'm a sucker for the old Jim Rogers style investment biker, adventure capitalist, traveling the world, sorta global macro sorta investment ideas. Plus, it was a lot of fun. And the guy that gave a speech after me was a musician in the group Rusted Root. So it was a pretty eclectic crew. And then on the exact flip side of that, San Francisco was a family office conference, so very buttoned down. It was wonderful, really good crowd, great questions. But it was funny because they immediately, I was going to join some attendees for the lunch, which is like a buffet lunch. was at the Wharton Campus in San Fran. Beautiful spot right down by the water. And the organizers were like, mmm. Uh, sorry but we don't really allow the speakers to stay for lunch and I was like what what do you mean you just flew me up here I was like okay she's like did I like did I tell you you could stay for lunch It's a
1: specialized rule just for you I'm sure all the other speakers are there (laughs) like
0: you need to get out of here so I was like okay I'll go eat next door anyway it was kind of funny of of all the Mazillion conferences and speeches we've done I like the they'd never, never a dull day.
1: Did you talk to Steve more about his listeners? Steve Sugaru, who was referencing in Nicaragua. He has an investment thesis that we're in the, the melt up phase right now, the bull sort of the last chug of it. Did he speak to you about that at all? Any thoughts on that?
0: Steve's been one of the the very few who's been really right this cycle. And, And you can go back. I mean, there's a speech he gave at the New York Stock Exchange in like 2012 where he outlined this thesis and he's been right. I mean, I think another person I give credit to is is Richard Bernstein has been kind of consistently right during this cycle and a few others, but it's it's created a graveyard for a lot of money managers. 2017 for a lot of hedge funds is some of the most famous hedge funds in the world's closed up shop last year. It's just been a very difficult environment for a lot of people, but the irony of that is it's been a pretty great time to invest, you know, really since the, the financial crisis and increasingly so in, in all other sorts of markets we're getting close. So by the time this comes out, we will know the answer to this, but the stock market is currently down on the month. It's February 26. We got two more days and we're about a percent or a percent and a half away. If we close up, it would be the longest streak in history about months in a row. So I'm cheering for it. I love for records to be broken, but it's coming down to the wire. So by time this comes out, we'll know one way or the other.
1: That's sort of an interesting segue. Talked about, you know, been a tough market for a lot of people. 2017 blew up a lot of funds. You obviously know, but we were talking about a way to differentiate this episode. Let's talk a little bit about what happened at the beginning of the month, how the short vol trade kind of blew up and actually did cause the uh, closing down of one fund. Oh, it was more than one. So it's funny
0: because... It's been such a long, mellow period in markets. we We talked about, I think my most famous tweet, most popular tweet ever was last year was the first year in which a calendar year when every single month was up for a stock for the stock market, twelve months in a row, which is crazy. And you just have this really mellow, low volatility environment. And I think a lot of people, you start to feel that complacency. And the beginning of the month, you started to see the market jiggle a little bit. But not even that
1: much. I mean, you had a pretty quick 5%, 10% decline. So I'll give you a quick stat here. I mean, the I don't know the top to bottom decline from it. But uh, February 5th, the down, the S&P were both down over 4%, which was apparently the uh, worst fall in six years. The VIX went from about 17 to about 50 And three short vol funds got nailed. Let's see here. Velocity Shares short-term ETN lost 85% of its value, Closed down 93 percent the next day. Let's see here. ProShares product lost 96 percent over the same period, and the short-term inverse velocity shares E T N shut down completely because of that. The ProShares one kept open, saying, "The quote was it acted consistent with its objective and reflected the changes in the level of the underlying index."
0: You know, it's it's it just goes back to the old know what you own. You know, it's kind of curious as to head scratchers to why these products exist in the first place. The short vol world in general is not something that's that attractive to me. We, we've been writing about it for years and and listeners that's a lot of different ways to express that. But there's historically been a lot of these short vol funds and what happens is you make a consistent like 1% a month or half a percent a month maybe. And you have a sharp ratio of like four. And so they raise a bunch of money because they're incredibly consistent and then you have sort of the Nasim Taleb Thanksgiving Turkey moment where he's got a great chart and I think it's his first book where he shows Turkey's happiness. <laughs> and so every day it goes up, goes up until Thanksgiving one year and then it just goes to zero, right? It gets it's <laughs> his neck chop. He's has got actually got a new book out. Looking forward to checking out. It's called Skin of the Game. Anyway. So short vol in general to me has not been that attractive. like just as a strategy, it's not. Well, the analogy
1: is uh, pennies in front of a steamroller.
0: Correct. And so we used to write about this a bunch. I mean, we wrote about it in the mid 2000s on the blog where we profiled a lot of these option selling funds. And there was a couple of problems with them. One is they almost exclusively focused on one market. So they almost always did say S&P 500 and maybe they would write a strangle or a straddle. So a sell both a put and a call. And I always scratched my head. I said, one, why wouldn't they at least trade 10 equity markets around the globe? But even then, you're still equity. So why wouldn't you then do a diversified option selling portfolio across wheat and the, the Japanese yen and et cetera, et cetera, right? Commodities, everything. And we did research back in this, back when I was in Tahoe and found a lot of potential there. But even more potential was selling vol away from the direction of the trend. So if a market was uptrending, you'd be selling more puts than calls anyway. So, but there's, there's in general, it's a strategy that's not that interesting, I mean, especially as when it's doing kind of dumb stuff like these did and in a leveraged basis. So there's a lot of people that called this correctly. So we had Veneer Bansali on the podcast who was great on this. You know, Chris Cole was pretty prolific about writing about this. We sent out some of his stuff to the idea farm. A lot of people were talking about this kind of crazy low vol environment. It just came out by the way. I mean, my guess is a lot of people were gunning for this. It turned out Peter Thiel, you know, Facebook, PayPal, everything else he's been involved with had bought like $240 million for the puts on these products. So he made probably a pretty penny. So the bigger question is, were people gunning for these products knowing that they would close up shop? It's kind of a fun example too of our tail risk fund. You know, we published the paper last year, launched this fund. And it's kind of a real time example of what that sort of fund would do. Anyway, so but the, the the one fun question I have is, what return would you require if you had a strategy? And let's and we can talk about it, but you knew it was going to blow up at some point. So it was going to have a 100% loss at some point. What return would you require for that strategy? And obviously, that's essentially the whole catastrophe bond space that Buffett invests in. But if I was to say to you, Jeff, look, here's the deal. This strategy does 20% a year, but one out of... And that's the hard part because the, the blowups are a little more rare. It, yeah. One out of how many years will make it reasonable for you to invest in that? What if it's 50% a year? What if it's 100 So that's hard because people invest in these. And we have that Storify link I'll add to the show notes called stories of this bull market. And it's all the really dumb stuff that's going on this point in the cycle that you see in bubbles. And it's got everything from crypto to Tiffany's selling $10,000 rulers to, you know, stuff like these funds. And, and the, you know, there's a guy in Florida that's made millions, you know, buying these funds and then loses 90%, right? Like there's just, just dumb stuff you see. So I mean, the big takeaway in general is know what you own. Um, now, that having been said, there's also a handful of funds. And I tweeted this the last time we did that short vol options hedge fund profile. We did it back in, I think, 2006 or seven, And we're like, at some point, these funds are going to blow up. 08, 09 happened. They all blew up except for one, which was called LJM. And I had tweeted about it maybe a year or two ago. I'm like, hey, by the way, look, looking back on this, all these funds don't exist anymore except for LJM. Well, guess who? And they were a multi-billion-dollar firm. Guess who is mutual fund loss? Whatever it was, ninety percent LJMs. And so you know they. Who knows what they were doing? That's cr- crazy to me that you could even have that possibility. And the name of the fund was something like preservation and growth, <laughs> just the worst possible name choice. And so, you know, it, it's, you see these sort of lulled sleep, but, but in general, it's shocking too, because, you know, you need to have some common sense about what's going on. And, you know, if you're a fiduciary or advisor and you're allocating these funds, think about how bad of a black eye that is. If you're allocating and you have any of these funds in your accounts,
1: how many do you know that went under, I just had that one
0: you know, there's some where it's like a, it's a mortal wound, you know, they've been stabbed and it's embarrassment and investors will pull all of their money.
1: So even though the VIX has, I'm sure it's obviously come way back down yeah, since, is that still the death blow for all of you ones? If
0: you went on vacation in January and came back at the end of February, the market is essentially unchanged and volatility is unchanged. That's a great example to listeners also of, we used to have people ask us all the time about our, a lot of our trend following ideas that updated monthly. And They say, well, maybe these can't, possibly can't work because you, you, what happens if the market's down ten percent in the middle of the month? You know, you're too slow. I said, well, that's actually one of the benefits of using a longer time frame is you ignore the month or whatever it is jiggles because you could have an a, a example of this month where it goes down a bunch and then back up. People will usually only think about one kind of outlier. So anyway, it 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 just goes under that category of do your homework. But in general, in my mind, the bar should be so much higher for these complicated products. You know, it, it's like, you have to have 10 reasons to want to invest in one of these really complicated products versus just investing in some basic
1: plain vanilla stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the short vol a lot right now, but long vol is also probably less understood or misunderstood. You know, I, I completely am guilty of that. Years ago, I got into VXX, just a long vol product, because I hadn't done my homework and thought basically I could sit there and just let the market you know, explode at some point. And I'd make tons of money. Didn't realize the issue with uh, Contango. It was basically just burning me every day that I held this thing. It's not a long-term product.
0: And that's a hard product for people to hold too. People hate slowly bleeding products, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you should read Buffett's annual letter always one, because they're wonderful, but two, because this one talks about some of that cat bond and reinsurance ideas where, you know, his, it's the same general concept. He says, you know, we do a lot, Buffett does a lot of reinsurance where they'll insure against catastrophic risk, say a hurricane. And they say, well, maybe it's only going to happen once every 100 years, but we don't know that. Maybe it'll happen two or four. So we try to put in enough of a buffer, but every once in a while, we're going to get smacked. And, I, you know, I think last year with a number of the natural. Disasters. It was more than usual. It's the same thing with the options, long and short. Ball was right? it?
1: Munich RE. One of those blew ups. I feel like it's a, it's the same general principle,
0: you know, is that people just miscalculate the risk. In particular, what magnifies this is leverage, right? So that the dial, you have this false sense of precision, where you say, "Oh, this only happens two out of a hundred years, and it happens five or ten, and you're you're done." So you want to avoid the almost in all of investing. I mean, same thing with designing a system. And Cliff Asnes has a great quote on this where people ask him about a historical simulation. He says, I I look at the drawdown, I double it because even, even when you are a student of history, there will be times that exceed the past. You know, that's a traditional way that as a money manager, when things kind of gyrate you know, you'll see these letters, they type out the RIAs and say, it's okay, calm down, this has happened in the past, and say the market's done this and that and that and that, right? But at some point, something will happen that hasn't happened in the past, the drawdown will be worse, it'll happen in a different way, 1987 style event, or if you're in Cyprus, you know, they confiscate your cash deposits. So you, the history is always a great guide, but that you could always, you have to be a little thoughtful of, you know, how things could happen differently.
1: All right. So let's wrap this up. Any final words to listeners about vol in general?
0: No. I mean, I think, you know, being mindful of these sort of jump sort of events and, and it's just not in general, the short stuff that can cause me 90% or 100% losses is not an attractive investment.
1: Let's hop into some uh, listener Q&A. Actually, before that, a couple of updates. Number one, people have been writing and asking about your trip down to see Van Simmons and the coins. You want to give us a quick takeaway?
0: Yeah, I totally forgot about doing this. We'll post some pictures on the website, but I gave Van some criteria. I said, you know, I would like to spend $10,000 that we did on the podcast. I said, I would like to tilt towards undervalued and tilt towards beautiful. And I don't just want one coin. I want... Somewhere between two and 10, you know, so I wanted a few. And so he came up with a handful. Um, There's some gold type coins, gold commemoratives, commemoratives, uh, such as $5 Liberty, $10 Liberty, $10 Indian, $20 Liberty. There's um, some 19th century type coins, which for a lot of people claim to be kind of the cornerstone of the rare uh, coin market in the last hundred years or so. So we got a, a silver proof seated dime. What's your favorite? I don't, I don't know that I have one. I'll tell you a funny story, and it's good because my wife doesn't listen to the podcast, so she'll never hear it. But you know Jackie. And so we had been displaced because our house had a bunch of mold in it. And because we have a new newborn, that's black mold. It's not a particularly good thing to have around. So we got displaced for a few months, and we were at her family's house. And like any you know family that's been around for a while, you just accumulate stuff. And so, look, we're guests, so I I have no um, like to stand on complaining about this, but you know, it's essentially like her bedroom from growing up, so it's just a, just accumulated. Just it's just a mess. I'm a pretty neat person, and so I kind of finally had. It, I was like, Jackie, can we at least just clean this up a little bit? Let me help you get rid of all this stuff. And so we spent an afternoon cleaning up and started with the bathroom. And the bathroom, I it, uh, it was it was like four garbage bags, just a junk, right? But I was starting to, like, throw stuff away, like, over my shoulder. And eventually, there was, like, a little, you know, kind of cute box in the back of the one of the bottom drawers in the back of the kind of counter in the bathroom. And I happened to open it. And there was a coin in there. And I was like, you know, having been studying this for the past six months, I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. That looks like it might be a piece, at least a piece of jewelry, right? Like a necklace that some people wear with a coin or something. I was like, Jackie, you know this? She says, um... She's like, I think my grandmother gave that to me. Yeah, I told her she did. It might, it, you know, it's pretty, isn't it? So, of course, I Googled it, and it's worth probably more than my entire coin collection, <laughs> by the way. So, it just goes to show, you guys, uh, listeners, clean, do a little spring cleaning. You'll be surprised at what you what you find. Wait, wait,
1: are you going to give the coin to Jackie? you taking it for yourself.
0: Oh, I, I just, yeah, I just pocketed it. No, it's, but, but it's <laughs> funny about stuff like this, too, because, you know, as you think about collectibles, and there's a lot of research on collectibles, and then, you know, in general, it's hard because many of the fine collectibles have appreciated And It's easy to look back and say, man, I wish we were talking with Van should have bought that Mickey Mantle or Batman number one. And I was a huge collector as probably many people our age were because that was really when baseball cards and a lot of collectibles kind of exploded in popularity. Right. And so, Probably anyone that's the age between 30 and 50, you would probably remember the 1989 King Griffey upper deck card or, you know, when baseball cards really hit their sort of peak. And so I had had a bunch of comic books, by the way, this my mom still has. Thank you, mom, if you're listening. But we went through at one point when I was younger and cataloged all of them and priced them out. And then, of course, she came down from the attic. She's like, oh, I have some comics up here. And sure enough, her comics were worth more than, like, all mine combined. It was some, like, cowboy comic from, like, the 50s or something. And on top of that, she also bought, like, the Jordan rookie card when we were collecting because she liked basketball and my brother and I liked baseball. Like, you know, so it just goes to show that investing in what you know usually, usually can work out. So, spring cleaning on top of that is a good good piece of advice. We're way off topic. Really. What's
1: Let's tie back to your coins real quick. What is your plan for this? Is this just something that's going to be beautiful for you to hold forever? Are you going to have this priced every five, 10 years as an investment? Like, what's your no, plan? I
0: mean, yeah, it's, I think it's just in the category of collectibles. I think it's kind of cool, different. I mean, it's not something that you can go down to Seven Eleven and buy anything with. It, you know, I, I don't love the argument that a lot of people, that my gold bug friends do where if you have Armageddon, at least you have some gold or something. I mean, come on. It's. it's I mean, this is
1: a numismatic. It's not bullion.
0: That yeah. You're either way, I don't believe that. Otherwise, too. By the way, with with bullion, but it's just something cool to have. I, I've always leaned towards the sort of the collectible world, but I also am kind of a big minimalist. So it's it's a it's a very fine line for me because I like getting rid of stuff. But um, I actually just bought a new product called Mural which is basically a frame. It looks like a TV in a frame, but you can subscribe or set up playlists of pieces of art. And it's probably coming into the office by the way, because it's not appreciated at our house, but you walk by it and you can flick your hand and it'll go to a new painting or you can set up a playlist or random, whatever you want. You can also flick up and it'll tell you the history of the painting. So it's like having a museum. It's like a word of the day calendar for art anyway. So, and that only costs, way less than buying a bunch of
1: original art. When are you going to get your uh, coins put in some display case? And, I don't
0: think they're going to be in a display case. I think that well, I should, you, I should probably get a, something I should them. probably get a safe. Why would you just put them in like a lockbox? Well, I mean, it's like, know. it's like Buffett with a stock certificate. He's like, you can take it out once a year, look at it, fondle it, put it back. <laughs> I don't know what to do
1: with them. Well, that, that completely though, it, it, it chops out at the knees one of your entire criteria for having this thing. You said beautiful and then rare. They it's are beautiful. beautiful. Oh, then all, right. that, all the more reason to put it away and never look at it again. Come yeah, on, Yeah, but man. then
0: if I put them on display, it's just kind of asking someone to come
1: and steal them. No, your logic is flawed right okay. now. Okay, we'll put them in the office. There you go. Yep, give them to me. I'll okay. hang on to them. All right, let's hop into some... Uh, actually, you know what? One, one more. One more uh, general topic first. You have been sort of on a tweet fest recently talking about a new offering from Wealthfront. Why don't you give us an update and what the uh, interesting situation there is?
0: You know, look, I mean, there's a lot of th- times where you see a lot of offerings that kind of make you scratch your head. And, and you know, look, we've been commenting on the automated space since like 2000, pre-crisis, like 2007 probably. And there's been an evolution of, of all these products. And in general, they've been an outstanding development for individual investors. So I put this under the category of automated investment platforms, what a lot of people call robo-advisors. So Wealthfront was one of the first. A lot of people who don't recall history, they were came out of a startup called Kaching, which was a Facebook trading app, which then pivoted into being a kind of follow the genius model where you could allocate to some money manager who was a genius and you pay it up to, is either three or four percentage points fee. And that business model has been a graveyard. It gets tried like every three years. Covester tried it, Marketocracy tried it in the last bubble in the late 90s, but they're still around, by the way. They have a mutual fund that's, that still exists. It's just a really, I think, flawed premise. Uh, I think it's hard. My interpretation, which we've always mentioned, if you're gonna follow, quote, smart money or geniuses, then follow at least the ones that probably have the best talent, which is hedge funds, which is 13Fs, which is our book, Invest with the House. But so then they pivoted to being a kind of modern portfolio theory, buy and hold automated service, which is, by the way, which is a totally fine, great offering. I recommended it to people in the early days. They charged 25 basis points, gave you a buy and hold asset allocation, rebalance, tax harvest, all that good stuff, Right. Totally great. And then, you know, Betterment being another independent competitor. But we always said, you know, the because of structural reasons that the custodians would eventually dominate this because they could use their own funds, thus have a huge price advantage. And that's come to pass. So Vanguard is now well over $100 billion. Schwab is north of 20 And then Betterment and Wealthfront are both at 10 So, you know, we've said a lot of things. We said there may be room for 10 of these. You've seen a lot of little ones sprinkle up that I think this is probably the... Killer app eventually for a lot of the ESG stuff because it's ESG has been a big area where
1: what define that for anybody's environmental
0: social governance. I think where that's there's been a ton of people media loves it, everyone knows at some point there's somehow going to be money there, but there's just no money has flowed to it for the most part. And I don't know if it's marketing or the message or whatever, but so if someone says, Look, I don't want gun stocks, I don't want tobacco stocks, I don't want whatever, you can exclude them. And so, an automated platform is perfect for that. So we've written a ton on these, on these investment advisors, and I think they're fantastic offerings. So first of all, by and large, they're far better than a lot of the junk you'll get where asset allocators will charge you one or two percentage points per year, plus underlying fund fees, and do the same thing, right? Now, the model has shifted a bit because it's hard for the independent. So Betterment now offers financial planning as well, as does Vanguard. And then the pivot that you saw Wealthfront making currently is they're launching a proprietary mutual fund. Which, look, first of all, I have no problem with companies making money. I have no problem with companies charging high fee funds. There's plenty of funds out there, 1%, 2%. I'm totally cool with that. But the challenge with Wealthfront has been, you know, over the past few years, they've been very aggressively attacking people for non-transparency, for questionable business models. So, they have all these public articles about attacking Schwab and Betterman, everyone else, financial planners, like really kind of on the borderline nasty, right? And so, then they come out and they say, we're going to launch this mutual fund. It's going to be risk parity, which by the way, doesn't jive with their historical investment strategy, but whatever. I have no problem with risk parity. I like risk parity. We used to own the risk parity domain. we told that story on the podcast probably, but...
1: Well, wait, have you talked about your second URL?
0: Risk parity? I actually <laughs> thought I had risk party, but it's risk parity. If you want it, listeners, let me know. You can type in the old one and see where it goes. It's risk like a parties Swiss better. Swiss hedge fund or something. So risk, risk parity is a great concept. And, you know, a journalist wrote about it and it's like, you know, Wealthfront's launching these ground groundbreaking mutual fund. I said, hold on, let's... let's journalist. There was a good thing because his Barons, There's no journalist name on it. So I just said journalist. Okay. Just a little history lesson here. Risk parity has at least been around since the time of Ray Dalio starting Bridgewater, the all weather fund. The, the genesis was he wanted a fund that if he croaked, he could put his family's trust in something. that's not going to depend on alpha type of ideas. So for those who aren't familiar, Bridgewater world's largest hedge fund, Risk parity, they have, they have two offerings. One's called All Weather, which is the risk parity offering, and one is called Pure Alpha, which is the go trade everything. So, the, the concept of risk parity, which is that there's no reason to accept prepackaged betas the way that they are. So, if you have stocks and bonds, stocks are inherently leveraged, they have debt, right? So, but you don't have to accept them at the 17% volatility that the S&P 500 ETF is given to you at, you could say add leverage or you could subtract leverage and add cash. And so you could target U.S. stocks at 10%. So then it becomes a question of correlations and then expected returns. And so you could leverage up bonds. The whole takeaway, we have a chapter in our book, Global Asset Allocation on it, freebook.mebfavor.com. You guys could get um, a free copy of it. We talk about risk parity but the whole concept is totally fine. But the the practical takeaway is you end up with a lot more in bonds. So you're leveraging the bonds up and you make sure you have other assets like real estate, et cetera. But first of all, so I made the comment, I said, look, risk parity has been around at least since Ray Dalio started this in the 90s. There was even a book before Dalio called diversify that I found. I love reading old investment books that literally has an all-weather, it's called the all-weather portfolio in the book that is a risk parity allocation. You go back further than that, every commodity trading advisor in the 70s allocated their portfolio based on volatilities and correlations. That's a risk parity style allocation you go back further than that. Harry Brown's permanent portfolio. That is a risk parity allocation. The entire genesis of modern port theor- portfolio theory by Markowitz is literally a risk parity concept. And then the joke I made, I said, if you go back 2000 years, the Talmud,
1: is that how you say it? Talmud, Talmud. What, yeah. I think
0: it was a third each in land, cash and like businesses. So that's kind of a risk. Parity. So I, I was just joking. I was laughing because there's nothing new about this. And by the way, you can essentially match Bridgewater's all weather. We did an article on this called Cloning the Largest Hedge Fund in the World. You can match their performance almost identical by investing in the global market portfolio with a little bit of leverage, all right? And as everyone knows that's read our book, asset allocation, if you're doing buy and hold, the actual allocation doesn't matter that much over time. It's really how much you pay in fees. Okay, all that having been said. So I said, look, it's great. There's another risk parity mutual fund. I'm totally cool with that. And, and they said that they were radically lowering the fees for risk parity. And they came out and the management fee is 50 basis points, half of 1%. That's great. And it's lower than the cost of the other mutual funds out there. What's the average out there ballpark for these? You know, probably like 80, 90, 100. You know, um, it falls under sort of a liquid alts kind of category. The weird thing to me is philosophically speaking, risk parity should be 100% of your portfolio. So if you believe in an asset allocation... It's like if we had the global market portfolio and went and added 60, 40. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like if you're gonna do buy and hold asset allocation, you should design the entire portfolio and be done with it. Because it's holistic. It defeats the whole purpose, right? It's like like someone reading my book and saying, you know what, all right, we're gonna allocate a third to the global market portfolio, a third to permanent portfolio, and a third to Buffett's allocation. 13 Fs. Then you just have this whole chicken soup of allocations and it's just a mess and it makes no sense. And you end up in the same things. It's like the example is the soup example, I think is very apt where you can take all these ingredients, you could eat them separately, or you could just eat them as soup, but no matter what in your stomach, they're all going to end up as one sort of, you know, amalgamation anyway. So it makes no sense to me really to cause risk parity is really a philosophical approach to asset allocation. So it should be the whole allocation, but whatever. So we, we were talking about fees, right? So the, the, so, you know, it's a 50 basis points, and the whole thing is, so Wealthfront charges 25. So now they're adding a proprietary mutual fund, which is 50. So already that, you know, that adds a little bit of questions. Whoa, wait, wait, wait. So, so we're talking about 125 total? No, no. So their service is 25 basis points. 25. For your robo-advisor. And a lot of people used to talk about this over the years. They said this model really isn't sustainable unless you already have your own funds like a Schwab and Vanguard. Schwab charges nothing. Vanguard charges 30 basis points, but gives you a financial advisor. So Wealthfront was charging 25. So they said, all right, we're going to launch our own fund. But here, here comes kind of the problems, right? So first of all, is it a red flag that you're using your own fund? Not really, like it, but, it's, but it's something, okay? I mean, look, Cambria uses many of our own funds. We don't charge a management fee on, the, on any of our individual accounts for that reason. But we do use our own funds. We use a lot of other people's funds, too. So that in and of by itself is not, to me, a conflict of interest. So, but, but it's an issue. So two, they're opting in. So it's not an opt out. They're just buying it for 20% of all their taxable accounts over a hundred grand. So to me, that's a little questionable because you're, you're departing from your stated sort of investment approach, but, but whatever, these aren't huge issues, but I'd ask them because I I'd recommended Wealthfront in the early days to a lot of people. So I have plenty of friends, probably listeners, this that have Wealthfront accounts, right? And the bigger issue I had is that this gets complicated quick listeners, but one of the ways that they could have allocated that say AQR, others do maybe risk parity is because you're targeting a higher level of leverage. So this fund is probably targeting 200% net leverage that you have to get that leverage exposure somehow. So people use futures, they may use options, they may use forwards, notes, whatever. The way that Wellfront did it is they're using a total return swap. And I said we in my mini tweets, that real quick. I will also, I, I, in my tweets, I said, this is probably above board. They're probably doing this the exact correct way. However, total return swaps have a enormous black eye on history for investing for individuals because historically, and this is the Wall Street Journal, Jason Zweig has written articles about it. Morningstar called it the worst behavior, the worst practice in liquid alt funds. Not one of them, the worst but what it is, it's it's a swap. So say I have a, say I want to get exposure to 200% portfolio, right? I could do it through futures, but instead I say, Jeff, Jeff bank, can you give me the exposure returns of this allocation? And for that, I'll pay you a fee. And so it's a swap. You give me the returns and you promise to track it. So what happens is you replicate it on your own, you know, through futures or whatever, cost efficiently, and I will pay you a fee for that. The problem is that fee does not get included in the fund overall fee. So Wealthfront can claim a 50 basis point fee. But in reality, that fee is probably, I guess, 25. So I don't don't really count the leverage because if you use futures, you know, the, the leverage is kind of a wash. But Jeff Bank, I have to pay you something for doing this exposure. Otherwise, why would you do it? So we asked around some trader buddies and it's probably 25 basis points, but that's half of the fee that they're charging. I don't know. But so, again, because I have friends that use the service, I had emailed them, I called them, I tweeted about it, got no answers. The email said, read the white paper. the white paper said, it's LIBOR plus 75 basis points. So, if that's the case, then you're not paying 50, you're paying 125. And so, it's just like, it's going back to our short option exposure. It's a product that's not it's complicated and it's kind of hidden fees. So the reason that Morningstar calls it the worst practice is that it's particularly prolific in the managed futures space. So there'll be a managed futures funds that say, hey, we charge 1% for this fund. Great. That's not that big of a deal. What they're hiding is that they get access to underlying managed futures managers through a total return swap, which, oh, by the way, that in manager gets paid 2 and 20 performance fee. So that Swap could cost literally
1: five percentage points, and that doesn't have to be stated in no
0: no and so so you'll see it I think you see it year two in the prospectus where they'll mention kind of estimates of the cost but not year one so it
1: seems like an egregious fiduciary lapse though, well so then so so
0: then this is an example where if you look at so they're not including it in retirement accounts which and oh so two other problems one is. They've always been huge on tax loss harvesting. All of a sudden, you're just opting people in, so you, you have to sell one fifth of the portfolio to, to allocate to this fund. So that automatically creates taxable event. Okay. Second, a swap, and it gets complicated, but is usually in my mind targeted uh, taxed at either sixty percent long term, forty percent short term, kind of like futures, or hundred percent short term. So it's a, it's a very tax inefficient vehicle in taxable accounts. So there's just a lot of things that are kind of questionable now. A cynic, and this is what I said in my tweet. I said a cynic would say that the entire reason they're doing this is that they're. If you say 25 basis points on 10 billion, that's 25 million in revenue. Adding this fund generates another 10 million in revenue. So you go from 25 million to 35 million in revenue. That's a 40 percent increase in, in revenue. So are they doing it because, you know, they they want to really believe in this fund? Probably. Like I I tend to take people's I believe in them, right? Like I believe them. And here's the, the weird part is I said, look, you could have charged one or 2% and the 1.25% is the average cost of a mutual fund. But from a firm that historically is claimed to be so transparent, I said, it's weird to me that they won't disclose that fee. So if you do charge 1.25, just own it. You know, just say you charge 1.2. I mean, look at Canberra. We have funds that charge 1% and a little bit more. We have funds that charge 30 basis points. You know, we have, you know, and and but like don't kind of beat around the bush. Don't claim you radically lower the fees and then not disclose. But again, qualifier, this could totally be all above board. It just seems conflicty. And the fact that they're not putting in the retirement accounts mean they have concern about DOL rules and, and being able to put it in retirement accounts.
1: Well, things if if there's greater clarity and communication, then the uncertainties will vanish and you'll know what you're dealing with. So it might be completely above board, but there's no reason to not be uh, very transparent about it.
0: Yeah. So who knows? I mean, hopefully they're doing the right thing. We'll see. But um, it's uh, it's
1: it's a little bit of a head scratcher. All right, let's uh, let's knock out some Q and A and then uh, move on. So start off here. I've heard Meb say recently that uh, given the current climate, it might be appropriate to allocate up to twenty percent of a portfolio in a hedging strategy. I've also heard him say many times that you need an exit strategy to follow. What is Meb's exit strategy for the uh, hedging strategy?
0: So this is kind of maybe get a little repetitive for listeners. You know, we talk so much about my philosophical allocation views. I mean, first remember that I think every person is different on their allocation. If you want to sit in T-bills, if you want to sit in gold coins, comic books, you know, it's whatever works for you. If you're Warren Buffett, you want to put 90% in the U.S. stock market, 10% in T-bills, totally fine. Harry Brown, whatever you want to do. You know, my beliefs were pinned in the Trinity portfolio, which is what I do with all my money, which is half in a global asset allocation portfolio with U.S. stocks, foreign stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities. Half in the US, half in foreign, tilts towards value and momentum, and the other half of that portfolio is in trend following and tactical ideas, and that's it. You know, and then we've talked about I do some private investing, and then I personally have a tail risk exposure. And that's I think what the question was hinting at. Because hedging strategies could mean a lot of different things that that are parts of the portfolio. But assuming they're talking about tail risk, you know, to me. Again, I'm an outsized example, which is why we didn't historically automatically add tail risk to client portfolios, is because it's it's not necessarily on a logical, mathematical basis, a great investment. It might not even be a good investment, but it's a good sort of diversifier. And for me, being someone who's particularly exposed to the asset management industry, it's a potentially wonderful anti-correlated sort of investment. And for all the reasons we mentioned in a tail risk paper why it's probably a a more comfortable investment right now with lower volatility, high valuations, et cetera. Uh, I've mentioned publicly in the past that I would probably add to it if and when the US stock market ever enters into a downturn, which it's not, downtrend, excuse me. Now, so the question is, when do I sell? This is probably the only investment that I don't have like a hard and fast, objective, rules-based approach to getting rid of it. But to me, if and when the tail event happens, you know, if and when U.S. stocks get cheap again, if and when you go through a long bear market and everything washes out, then that time. So there's a couple inputs. It could be I add more when the market enters a downtrend and sell it all when it enters back into an uptrend. You could sell it all well, if it you goes up 20,
1: up? 50, 60 percent. Are you measuring that by a potentially 200-day moving? Yeah, average? something
0: like that, you know. But, but again, to me, particularly right now, it is a bleeding Insurance type vehicle that will probably lose 5% a year more if we have another 2017 where every month is up and no volatility. But in general, I would, you know, I probably should put in limit orders at 40 and 80% above the market currently in case we have a 1987 style event and you don't have time to sort of react. That's a reasonable idea. But again, I'm an outlier. Most people are not going to put 10%. And I'll probably take it up to 20 plus of their portfolio in that. And it doesn't make sense. They don't need to. If you have a 10, 20, 30 horizon and you've done all the other things we've talked about, diversifying globally, value tilts, adding all sort of uncorrelated assets, like you probably don't need the tail risk sort of idea. But I just like the idea of something going up and everything else is puking. I'd I like love- the idea a couple weeks ago when all this VIX stuff was happening. I love the idea that something was up 5% on the day.
1: Did you buy more during then? No.
0: I'd love to see. I mean, historically, the research has shown that the volatility explodes and, and returns are worse for stocks when they enter into a long-term, long-term downtrend, which hasn't happened. You know, we're still in an uptrend across almost any metric, with the exception of maybe U.S. REITs. I think they're now officially a downtrend, which, interestingly enough, was the first thing to go in
1: 2007 was REITs slowly just topped off. So hopefully that's not a repeat. So you mentioned earlier, you might take it to 20%, whatever you're at now, call it 10, I don't know. So you might be adding then. So I'd be curious, you know, in the future, if we could look back and see the, the timing of when you would add more if the market does hit a downtrend, because it's going to be a trade off. On one hand, you can be adding more protection. If, but it's, then at a, if point, it's a puke
0: down, I won't be adding more. If it's a rollover, I will. Hmm. Makes sense. The market is yeah, up down sense. 20 tomorrow. I'm not going to buy more because the events kind of already happened. But I mean, this is a tactical. But that's a, this is not a term, good
1: long-term investment to use your own term. That's sort of binary thinking. Isn't there the possibility that you might have a little bit of both in terms of there could be some puke days followed then by some sort of slow rolling drawdown Puked to me is like a 10%
0: down day or a 20%, 10, 10% plus down month. 20% down month. The, that that's where you get into the real pukage. Think about that, listeners. This has happened plenty of times in the past as far as 10% down
1: months. That's a pretty painful that's pretty painful month. That hurts. All right, let's uh, let's keep going here. Uh, leverage. How when should an investor use leverage? What would it take for you to use it with GTAA? And just tell her by what GTAA is just make It's
0: sure. a it's an investment acronym that stands for Global Tactical Asset Allocation you know, leverage is a tricky subject. And we almost, I agree with Warren Buffett almost always where he say, you don't need leverage. And if you compound at 15% or find a way to do that, eventually you'll be an incredibly rich person. Um, so a lot of people are seduced by trying to get to that 15% by leverage. And he also says, or Charlie Munger says, you know, the, the three biggest things that um, have have caused people to blow up or have problems is ladies, liquor, and leverage. <laughs> Both those guys, I love them to death, but they they're, they definitely get a little pervy in this, in this sort of hashtag me too environment. Um, you go really read a lot of their, their old letters and they're definitely cut from a different generation. Anyway, which by the way, you and I are from the South and probably 90% of the way that men interact with women would be considered like offensive this day and age, like calling girls, darling and sweetie and sweets. And anyway, so I mean, leverage, you know, again, going back to the concept, a lot of things are already leveraged. Reits are already leveraged. Equities are already leveraged. So, I mean, if you think of the risk parity concept, it's, you're finding the quote optimal, point on the securities market line and then leveraging it up and down based on what you see fit. So as a whole portfolio you're leveraging. And you know, it's in general, there's not a not a lot. I mean it's a very specific question. Or sorry, it's a very it's the answer is very specific to the example of what it may be, but a much better generalization is that you should just avoid it. You know, I mean, most people say, oh, I can take, I, I'm going to leverage it two to one, close my eyes and because I, I can take the drawdowns and very rarely can people. You're like, you're going to be that rational when you look at a lot of these small cap strategies that people are gunning for and leverage them. Say so I can do two to one leveraging small caps because I'm rational. And so you had to sit through multiple 50 to 80% drawdowns. You know,
1: it's interesting. The uh, claiming you can take like a 20, 30% drawdown even that is so different than actually applying that percentage to your actual capital base and looking at burning that much money. I mean, it's such a different visceral impact when you think about that. And,
0: you know, if you look at one of my favorite tweets from, I think it was one of the Ritholtz boys or Morgan, who knows, but it was something along the line of all these journalists love saying something like, if you had just bought 10,000 of Amazon in 95, it would be worth 4 million today. And their quote was, and had you held it, you'd have been a complete psychopath because you would have sat through 250 and 190 percent drawdowns like no one like one out of 100 people can do that. And even even Berkshire in his letter this year said that, you know, essentially Berkshire has had four. I think it was 40 percent plus drawdowns, including two fifties. Mm hmm. And so you have to endure though. I mean, and and they have that great quote, Charlie's like, look, if you can't handle 50% drawdown, you have no point owning quoted securities.
1: Well, that, I mean, I think that same article, somebody was trying to make the point, the author was trying to make the point how, um, Buffett's rule about never lose money. Rule number two, you know, don't forget rule number one. uh, That's, you know, a load of BS because of Buffett having been down so many times. It's just, it's inevitable. It's part of
0: that's goes back to my favorite high percentage trading rules. If you wanna if you want to never lose money, you have like a ninety five percent success rate is or if you have a newsletter, you just make recommendations and never close out the trades until they become profitable. <laughs> you say I have ninety nine percent winning trades because you just buy a hundred stocks and close them out on the first profitable close and the ones that aren't profitable, you just let them go. <laughs> it's <laughs> a great right. strategy. So new, same thing in business long, direction. If you have a long enough time rising, that's the same thing about valuations. You know, valuations matter a heck of a lot for shorter periods of under 20 years, under 10 years. But when you get to the really long time horizon, it's more kind of in line with GDP, sort of.
1: It's going to wash out. All right, next question. Mab. what's your take on a vanilla Vanguard target date fund versus Trinity over 15 or 20 years? You
0: know, the target dates are great. They're great because people mentally, for some reason, bucket them a little bit different. And I think most of the research has shown that people behave best in target date funds. And I don't know if they, just because they think about it as a retirement vehicle, that they're consistently dollar cost averaging into, that they don't really know. It's not like they're investing in just the S&P 500 funds, so they don't really know what to cheer for or not because there's some bonds and some stocks. So I think they're wonderful. And I think they're a great solution for a lot of people. And Trinity, I mean, it's a it's a... Similar but kind of cousin of that concept, the the target date funds automatically become less in equities as you get older. There's a huge amount of variability in the target date funds. You could look at two that have the same concept but very different paths and and approaches. But in general, like we're we're totally fine with them. I mean, Trinity again. I've said this a million times, but Trinity is I designed it because it's what works for me. But there's plenty of great investing solutions, including, you know, we have one of the lowest cost buy and hold asset
1: allocation funds on the planet. So that's fine, too. I think Target Day is brilliant from a marketing perspective because it taps into that sort of uh, the illiquidity sort of dynamic that you've talked about so many times when we have referenced private investments, which is how it's such a, a tailwind because you can't access it. And, you know, the idea of the Target date fund, you're just going to sort of turn away and not even look at it. I don't know why people don't really think of that with other investments that are part of their uh, retirement bucket. Maybe we should launch one called Target Date Trinity. Done and done. (laughs) All right. Uh, Next question. With fee compression and product commoditization, how do you see large, active, focused, publicly traded asset managers faring in the next five to ten years?
0: I think you're going to continue to see what you have been seeing, which is a lot of the the old guard try to launch funds, and there's just such so many just bad me too funds. It's like they're trying to do do the same model they had with mutual funds, and they know they need to be in the ETF or low cost space, and they're trying. And I just continually just kind of shake my head, be like, "What these guys have no sort of clear messaging and no clear sort of product lineup." I think you'll see a lot more acquisitions. I mean, it's every day you hear our uh, our good friends at Global X just got acquired $10 billion shop by Mirai. You, in that same article, it was talking about all the other firms bidding on them. And I think it was Aberdeen and JP Morgan and all these others are looking to acquire firms. So it's it's kind of either or, but it's, it's the same thing about business has always been. These huge incumbents have a huge cash balance sheet plus kind of a dwindling, but still fantastic business. Like the American funds of the world, they have a great business, but it'll probably be declining and lose every year. So, you know, they do what incumbents do. They start buying up small, some of the small innovators and shops out there. So you'll see a lot more consolidation, but it's still a good business. The question I'd raised many times on this podcast is, is that transition a phase shift where it happens in just a few years, or is it a multi-decade? And I don't know. The blockbuster Netflix moment. I think it'll last. Um, I think the the trends will accelerate, but I think it's a sort of scenario where people wise up to this stuff slowly. You know, when you get when someone dies, when someone gets divorced, when you inherit assets, that's usually when they get liquidated and then invested into the kind of cheaper, better products. But this is a world we live in where there still exists a two point three percent fee SP five hundred mutual fund. Like, how, how is that possible that that is still exists? How is it possible that there's a ton of literally S&P 500 mutual funds that charge over a percent? Like, in an in a efficient world, that should never, ever, ever happen.
1: To what extent do you think that the broad investing populace out there is aware of this sort of uh, fee compression and the sort of transition in the industry? Because in one there's, sense, there's a, there's... hold on, everybody listening to this podcast is probably within a bubble. I mean, anybody listening here is somewhat educated and investing and probably this is all over their radar. But I mean, there's a much bigger world out there who I feel like is still probably 15 years behind. You see
0: it playing out in totally different areas. I mean, look what's going on at Harvard. Harvard has just been this mess in the endowment for years now where you see this sort of education gap. But on top of that is misaligned interests and you know, different people like alumni and faculty and investment managers and students all having interests, but also maybe not a great understanding of investing. So it creates huge problems. And the same thing we see it every day in these office hour summaries we did, where we talked to people and there's often an education gap. I mean, the the basics today, I had tweeted out because kind of around the Berkshire meeting, I tweeted out, like I did this old chart we had in Best with the House where we did the, hey, here's what Warren Buffett's top 10 stocks have done back to 2000 versus Berkshire, and they're pretty close, neck and neck, though the tech quote clone actually wins, and how they both beat the S&P by 4 percentage points a year but have underperformed 8 of the last 10. But it's funny to read the Twitter comments because a bunch of people, they totally missed the point of that, which was you would have had one of the best-performing managers on the planet since 2000 but you would have had to allocate through this whole period and active managers go through these long periods of, of underperformance. So the takeaway should, was supposed to be if you're in search of alpha, you have to be willing to allocate for 10 plus years to a manager. Otherwise you're just going to chase performance like all these other idiots. And that's not just individuals, that's institutions as well. But if you read the Twitter comments, it was so funny because people were like, well, you could have allocated to an ETF and that would have beat Buffett the past eight years. I was like, that's not the point. The whole point, you're describing the problem. The point was that you would have beaten 99% of all mutual funds, but you would have had to endure a 10 year period of underperformance. So it's hard. So I, I think, I think the, the, the way the world's going and this is, you know, the internet's sort of effect on everything is that the disinfectant sunlight of the internet like, at some point, the 2.3% S&P 500 mutual funds won't exist. At some point, the, the S&P 1% ones shouldn't exist because everyone will figure out you can buy that for literally five basis points. It's the exact same thing. Literally, it's the exact same thing. There's a good website called Feex, uh that you can type in a fund and it'll spit you out a cheaper alternative. But will the kind of, you know... Kings of the kingdom hedge funds still exist. Of course, people always be attracted to different strategies. And even the thing when I was talking about earlier, you know, we talk a ton about low fees, but my comment, fees are just, to me, it's like a bar. It raises the bar for what the criteria is for to invest in something. I absolutely believe in kind of Swenson's conclusion at Yale, all that matters is after fee, after tax performance. And that's it. That's all that matters. The problem is just the bar in general is so much higher for higher fee products. If you have somebody who's charging three percentage points and thirty percent of profits, he better damn well be David Tepper and and Stevie Cohen's you know love child, right? <laughs> because otherwise, it's just really hard and it just creates much bigger. Would you pay
1: two percent for anything right now? Three sure. percent.
0: I mean, all fans, I told you, Steve Cohen, Dave Tepper's love child, <laughs> I would absolutely pay for that. I'd like to see that too. Yeah. I mean, look, I pay care. I pay 20% carry on almost all of these private fund deals. Now I've talked about it a million times and I think, you know, I'm doing it as an education. It's a very small percentage of the portfolio. Are there allocators out there that are worth, you know, these high fees? Absolutely. Are there strategies that are worth high fees? Absolutely. It tends well, to be more niche. Private, though,
1: has a different feel than public markets.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it tends to be more niche. I think the public markets, you know, they they get more commoditized every day by a lot of the quants. You know, we I think it makes the world more efficient. But fees in and of itself is not, you know, the final, like... In general, we prefer low fees because it's a big difference, particularly if you're doing buy and hold. Then it's really stupid to pay high fees. But if you're doing active and weird and different, high fees are fine. But again, going back to the closet indexing, you only want to pay high fees if you're doing something super active, weird, and different. These closet indexers that look exactly like the S&P and charge you 50, 100, 200 basis points, it defeats the whole purpose. So fine, go invest in a fund that does... Timberland or trailer parks or litigation like who whatever but to me it just it, it just makes the bar higher. And a lot of people don't understand. I mean we we talked about this back in 2007. I said the hedge funds you know to overcome that 2 and 20 fee you have to do something like 17% gross to get down to a stock like return of 10% historically. So you need to create a massive amount of alpha and on top of that, it's probably tax inefficient
1: to be able to be additive. Reminds me of Wes's article about uh if you consistently compound at seventeen, twenty, whatever twenty-five a year, I mean you're gonna own the entire market. You own the
0: entire world. Right. So that's uh, if someone's marking you twenty percent so you're right, that that's what they have to hit. And it doesn't mean it's not possible. I absolutely have met a ton of people where I think it's, you know, possible, but it's tends to be
1: much more nichey, concentrated. It's just hard. It's a lot harder. Two more questions. Um, we got a handful of questions this week about generally asset allocation for the younger generation. So I'll roll them up into just you know one aggregate question. But in essence, it's uh, how do you think about asset allocation for a millennial uh, sub 30 with retirement accounts? The typical 60, 40 doesn't seem so great.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, the starting point we always say is global market portfolio. So it's half stocks, bonds, half U.S. foreign that's a pretty good starting point. The cost on that is probably sub 30 basis points for sure. But Matt Hogan, Hogan, excuse me, um, has writ, who, by the way, was the former CEO of ETF.com. Now he's, he just went to go start, uh, join a crypto firm. And Matt's great. Anyway, um, he wrote a consistent article called the cheapest portfolio in the world. Every year it gets cheaper and cheaper. I think it's now down to like eight basis points. Anyway, You know, to me, that's the starting point, but you're young, you're in your 30s. You can also spend some time learning. Go ahead and put that 10% of the portfolio. So so 80%, 90% put an automated solution, whether it's a target date fund, whether it's one of these robo-advisors, whether it's a group of ETFs, and just kind of forget about it. You want to go light the other 10%, 20% on fire, trading Ripple and Ethereum and everything else and Jeff's options and who knows whatever Go for it. I mean, the best tuition would be to spend zero time on the market and read some history books. You know, we did that old article called "The best way to add yield to your portfolio is to do nothing and probably work harder and try to get a better job." But um, there was actually a great Vanguard piece we just sent out to the Idea Farm that went through. I think it was their 2018 outlook, and at the end they showed a chart of kind of what were the biggest determinants of long-term investment success and the first one was saving more and starting early which is obvious but it's pretty profound and the other three essentially had nothing to do with investing it was spending less you know lower fee funds was one but only was like the asset allocation decisions and adding commodities and thinking about all that other stuff really important it's like the old food pyramid it's like, what's most important? and You go down eventually, sort of the, some of the investing stuff's important, but it's almost all
1: personal finance decisions when you're young. Well, you should write that sort of Maslow's hierarchy for investing.
0: You should write it and I'll edit it <laughs> is the correct way this works. Cause you, you are a much better writer than I am, but I, was that what it's called? What? Maslov? The,
1: M- Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's the original sort of back to, it's a pyramid up where at the beginning, it's, like sleep it's, or it's, your, it's your basic like shelter, protection, food. And then as you go up, you're self-actualizing. Mine's, sort of mine's
0: like, not that way. Mine would go sleep first. <laughs> shelter, whatever. If you take away any of those things, sleep by far is the one that I fall apart. Food food is yours. Food is absolutely yours. If Jeff goes That'd without three hours of with calories. Food. Listeners, you may not know this, by the way. Jeff has two lunches every day. <laughs> the first is a spinach blueberry salad and almond salad. By the way... It's delicious. Are you, you know what we should probably do? We should pro- If anyone's still listening at this point, which I doubt, we should probably just get rid of sponsors and ask people to gift support the podcast. We just got a a, a great... Delivery of Memphis barbecue from a listener. Thank you, listener. Those peanuts we get are great. I know. So if you guys if you guys really want to say thank you for the podcast, you can send Jeff food. It's like a <laughs> it's like a circus animal. You just throw him a steak every once in a while, and the podcast gets better. What's been your favorite so far? Which podcast? We just had six bottles of wine.
1: Rasmussen's was great. We
0: got a, no, 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 no. I don't care about the podcast. Which was your favorite gift you received? We got six bottles uh, of wine. Did you, I had haven't had my pinot noir from Oregon.
1: I think I took on a cab. I haven't had it yet. Yeah. That's a good one. Wait, wait, hold on. Let's sw- let me back up. I okay. got a question for you. Um, I tried to ask this I think the last radio show, but I don't think I did a good job of of communicating it clearly. Right, you look at the global market portfolio right now. My impression and tell me if I'm wrong is a lot of markets around the globe are more expensive than their traditional averages. Sure, emerging markets are still cheaper or whatever, but as a whole, we're kind of pricey. It's kind of, it's kind of like
0: Trump during one of the debates. Do you remember that when he was like, wrong? He just kept <laughs> interrupting. He said, wrong,
1: <laughs> wrong. All right, well, so that might be your you wrong. Know, where you take this. Yeah, no, well. well I but what I was going to say, though, is like, Anybody, we've gotten a few people who've written in saying, I finally just got back in the market. Now, I think they're referencing the U.S. equity market. However, let's just take it more broad right now. If you have a lump sum of money, and people always ask about, do I allocate it all at once, or do I cost average in? If somebody's going the global market portfolio right now with whatever, a million bucks, is it at such a state right now where it's best just to throw it all in and let it ride, or do you think that we're still on sort of the more expensive side in enough markets where it might make you pause, at least in terms of just throwing it all in at once. We, we tweeted about this the other day. Speaking of
0: Trump, at some point, this is going to be like, there's a tweet for everything. I can just go to my tweets um, where I was talking about expectations and going back to, to millennials. You know, I said um, in that Vanguard outlook, they had said expected returns 4.5% for a global portfolio. So I said, reasonable, Vanguard. And then I said, unreasonable, average pension fund, seven and a half. Average investor says 10.2. Average millennial says 11.7. And the average institution that allocates to hedge funds expects them to do 13. So it's crazy to me. And I don't understand why, by the way, Soapbox, why any pension fund and endowment has a fixed return when the biggest component of returns is probably inflation. And so historically you've had, let's call it 4%, 3 or 4%, so let's call it 3% inflation over a reasonable period and 5% returns over that for 8% total. Well, if inflation's one and you still get that historical five, then now you're already down to six. So it makes no sense to talk about 3% inflation when there's only one in the world anyway. But, but historical, a great rule of thumb is just say four percent over inflation. that's what your portfolio is going to do. almost every portfolio in our book, asset allocation did four to five percent over inflation, so four to five percent real, but be conservative and say four
1: and that but that's so your long term or average is there yeah. still a lot of volatility so going that? back
0: yeah of course it's all over the place. it's going be twenty plus twenty plus minus twenty percent in a given year. going back to your original question, is the world expensive no the u s is the, the second or third most expensive country in the world, but most of the world is totally average to cheap. And the, and the cheap stuff is some of the cheapest it's ever been relative to the U S and the world. So that's people are all, so talking about dollar cost averaging. It's the correct answer in my mind, logically speaking, is I think Corey Hofstein just put out a piece on this is to invest it all today. That's just math. But for a lot of people, psychologically speaking, the best thing to do is dollar cost average. So put in 500 bucks a month. And that way you don't have to worry about it. As markets are going down, you're adding more. As markets are going up, you're still adding. So psychologically speaking, I think it's really hard. That was one of the office hour takeaways for people is stop thinking binary terms. And the beauty of that is people are always worried about the market, which is the U.S. stocks. Well, U.S. stocks are only a small percentage of the global market portfolio. They're a minority. So... Um, but the good news is most of the world's reasonably priced to cheap. Now, you have pockets of things that are kind of crazy, like foreign, foreign sovereign bonds that have negative yields
1: and U.S. stocks, but a lot of stuff's probably totally reasonable. Uh, you mentioned inflation. This ties into our last question, so let's knock this out and call it a day. Uh, with rising rates, I am in short-term notes uh, to limit duration. With hints of higher inflation, do tips make sense? And as a quick tack on, somebody else was saying, Meb, how are you playing inflation? And how are you diversifying within fixed income?
0: Yeah, tips are fine. You know, know, I think that's a reasonable thing to allocate to for almost anyone, U.S. and global.
1: Clarify real quick, just for anybody who's not familiar with it.
0: Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. I think I got that right. Launched in 97 in the U.S. They've been around far longer elsewhere, but the coupon payments adjust for inflation and the principal... God, you're catching me at the end of this long podcast. But essentially, it's a, it preserves your purchasing power. So as opposed to most bonds that would really struggle with a, a rising inflationary environment, and even then, by the way, the coupon payments ratchet up. So if you're, you get, it's a seesaw, you get higher payments despite price losses. But it's the long periods of high inflation that kind of erode bonds typically.
1: All right, so yes, then tips will work for you. Tips are reasonable. All right. Anything else on your end? No, around for a while. Um,
0: got a few writing projects, but otherwise we're, we're trying to update, by the way, you know, something interesting. I don't know if I sent you this, but do you remember when Amazon had a bunch of our books? Someone emailed me. It was like, I see your book is $700 on Amazon. Why is that? And so I went and Google Meb Faber on Amazon and I had like 30 book listings. So it, it would be exact coplica, uh, exact replica, copy, coplica is, is a copy replica wow. of shareholder what? yield book. But the name was a little bit different. So it'd be like shareholder yield 2013 was the name of the book. And the publisher was Meb Faber instead of the Idea Farm or whatever. There's all these little differences. And so I I have a good friend at Amazon. I emailed him. I'm like, hey, what's up with this? Like, how do I get all these taken down? It's, it's clearly not me. So I said, this is fraud. What, so there's some sort of fraud going on. And so this long article just came out recently. And it turns out it's not fraud the way that I think it would have been, which was people buying copies of my books, relisting them with the hopes that someone would buy it for $900. It's actually money laundering. So what people would do is they would set up the book copies, steal people's credit cards, charge it. So Amazon would pay the bank account that was linked to the book as a way of just, uh, laundering money from stolen credit cards. Isn't that fascinating?
1: Part of the problem,
0: yeah. Uh, so anyway, but we're, so that's on the to do list is to update, particularly shareholder yield global value because they were on the early end of us doing self-publishing so i have no problem with the ebooks but the physical books look terrible i think they're like d plus quality global asset allocation invest with the house i think are b plus a plus not a plus b plus and a but the first the first couple were pretty pretty bad well,
1: stop traveling start working
0: yeah so that's on the to-do list uh take us out okay listeners thanks so much send us lots more calories to Jeff and reviews. We, uh, we read all of them and really appreciate all of them, including the one that just says lame on there. Um, so leave us a review on iTunes. You can always subscribe on Overcast, Stitcher, Castro, all those good ones. And, uh, thanks for listening, friends. Good investing.